Hey, I'm Ochoa. I have a question for you today, and my question is, you were at an event, and you did uh, an Ochoa thing, and you interviewed students, and you started asking them questions <laughs> about their favorite subject, and somehow this got into a favorite teacher conversation, and what does that, what does it mean to be a good teacher, and I just wanted you to, this seemed, it was so insightful, that I just, I think our audience would be interested, so let's recap, let, let set the scene for us, and then walk us through this conversation, because I, I think it's a fascinating one. Okay. Well, you know, I referee volleyball. So today I was at a volleyball tournament this morning, a little bitty one, but it had some high school kids doing the table. So I always chatted up with the kids. I mean, I think it's fun. I like, well, I mean, that's why I do this job. You know what I mean? So, but usually when I don't know a student and, and these are, none of them, I'm in my uniform. So nobody knows I teach school. So I walk up to them and I said, uh, so girls, what's your, what's your favorite subject? And they go, and I said, wait, before you answer, it better be the right one. And they're like, what? You just ask us what our favorite one. I said, no, but you better answer correctly. Anyway, they answered with math, which is beyond me. So I told them, what wrong answer? It should have been English. I'm an English teacher. You have to say English. And they were like, well, we're okay with English. I mean, we would like English, but if our teacher was better, we would like it. And I went, that really caught my attention because it's like, I love English, whether I have a good teacher or not. So what is it about the teacher that makes a difference? I said, but before I, that was my thinking. That was my thinking inside. My outside was this. I didn't ask if you were, if you liked your teacher. I asked what subject you liked. And they said, well, but the teacher makes a difference whether we like it or not. And I'm like, okay, explain. Because I wanted to know, I mean, that really piqued my curiosity. How do students see teachers and how do they know if they've got a good one or not? That's really where I was going with this. And so I said, that's, so I kind of asked a question in that. So what makes a teacher good? I mean, how do you know you have a good teacher? I just thought I asked them that. And these are, uh, come to find out they're freshmen, sophomore, and junior. They were three girls and they were freshmen, sophomore, and a junior. And, uh, and so they were like, well, let me give you an example. We like math, but we have a math teacher that's not very good. She's really not a good math teacher. And the reason, and I'm like, oh, well, it sounded kind of harsh. But she said, but but no, I mean, we like her because she likes us. We can tell she cares. And she actually has a conversation with us. But why she's not a good math teacher is because she doesn't know the content so she has to use the lead teacher's notes and she writes all the notes on the board every day, but she takes time to write all those notes out so that we can see what the other class is doing. And so we know that she cares because of that. And then she gives us time in the classroom to help us figure it out. Like if we can't, if she can't explain it, then she'll let us research it and figure it out until we all figure out the answer. And if none of us can come up with the answer, then uh, she'll ask the teacher the next day that's helping her. And, but we know she'll do that, and she's always doing that. So we know she cares. So we would rather be in her class than our English teacher's class, because in our English teacher's class, 
she knows the content. She's really good at the content. I mean, she really knows English, but she's really hard and very strict, and she doesn't do anything to make it interesting. She just gives us the material. We have to read it. We have to annotate it. We have to write about it, and then she grades us extra hard, but she never really has a conversation with us, and we really hardly ever, most of our work is done somewhere else. We just... In other words, uh, I got the impression that it was like homework, that they have to do a lot of homework, and then she just grades it. They go over it, and then she gives them the next assignment. That was the impression that I got. And she said, but they don't, she doesn't care. So to make a good teacher, you have to have both. You have to have a teacher that cares about you and a teacher who knows their content. And when you have both of those, that's when we like our, we, we can like any content better. They didn't say the word content, but you know, we like, it really does make a teacher uh, good. And that was it. And then we had to start the game. I wanted to continue the conversation, but I did. I wasn't there to interview students. I was actually there to uh, facilitate and make sure that the entire room was enjoying the volleyball games that, and, and, you know, once a teacher, always a teacher. I was out there, the, the, the guy that was in charge of the gym, these were little Catholic schools. And, and so they were sixth graders who had never played. It was their first day. So none of them knew how to substitute. So we had to slow it all down. I had to teach them how to substitute. I had coaches come up to me going, I'm really nervous. I've never done this before. I don't know how to do a lineup. So here I am teaching them how to do a lineup. I had to teach the people how to do the scorebook. And the guy that was in charge of the whole place goes, you know what? It's God's blessing that you are here because I don't think I could have helped any of these people because I had none of the answers. I'm so glad you're here. And then my little referee that was with me, she's just learning. This was her third game so she didn't know how to do any of it so anyway it was it was precious I even turned around and there was one time that all the students were out of rotation on both sides and I could tell because it's a boy girl it's co-ed and you can't have two boys next to each other and there they all on both teams they were so I look at the coaches and across the you know everybody's quiet in the gym and it's full it's a full house but I I I across there, I said, coaches, y'all probably want to ask for a lineup check right now. <laughs> so I was over there conducting, conducting everything. So I was teaching the whole time. This The guy, he didn't know I was a teacher, but he goes, you should be a teacher. And I said, okay, I am. <laughs> so anyway, there I was instructing a whole entire gym about how to play volleyball. That's so funny. That was, but that was interesting. It really was. Yeah, well, you know, it's the kids are always watching. Kids are more aware mm-hmm. than probably we ever will fully understand because some of it's intuitive, right? You know, when someone doesn't like you, or you know, when someone, you know, we, we, it's the whole inferencing thing. We infer body language, how people interact. And you and I, I, I don't know, I'm sure we've said this on the show. We probably said it last week, but. You know, you know a lot about a teacher and the relationships that are in that room just by stepping in there for five minutes. Now, you don't know everything Mm -hmm. in that time, but you can know the general feel and how that teacher interacts with students during that time. Right. And that's that's Mm -hmm. the one thing that is uh, it's apparent when you start doing that and walking into rooms. But it's it's. That's interesting. I just thought it was great. So I appreciate the thoughts. One more thing before I intro, you know, you I know you do your volleyball stuff. We uh um I was at a, a volleyball game. Uh our varsity was playing uh last night. So I didn't get home wow. until, you know, like 8:30 or whatever. It was a gr- the game was great. I mean, it went 
it was so they played, you know, best of five, and it went well over two hours. Five. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well over two uh, hours. And it was, in, I mean, they won by about two at the end. So it was, we we won uh, the overall, and it was, it was wild. I was like, this is intense, man. Some of these. It is. And some of our, you know, some of our kids, they have like full rides already, like some of our star varsity players. And I mean, it's yeah. pretty incredible to watch. Yeah, I used to, I actually used to referee that level of volleyball. My level is that I'm doing now is all middle, um, it's still high school, but it's all uh, private schools and parochial schools So that and home schools. So I pretty much do the private sector now, but I used to do all of those. As a matter of fact, um, I did quite a few games at Keller High School and at uh, Central wasn't there yet at the time because it's one of the newer high schools over there. But yeah, I was over there quite a bit. Those are pretty intense games. Well, I had one of those intense ones Friday night. Friday night I had a... a Team. Now, this is I, since we're on the note on how adults make a difference. This team that I went to, uh, this this uh, particular school I went to, they uh, Friday night last year they had a coach that got sick at the beginning of the year, and then they had to come in with a new coach, right? And so they were a pretty good team. They get a new coach, and that coach starts screaming at them, yelling at them. Their best player, she starts sitting them on the bench. And I literally, I, I, I told my, um, I talked to the guy that assigns my, my, you know, my stuff. And I said, "Oh my gosh, I don't know if I want to go back over there because I don't, I don't think I want to see the." the adult reacting that way. He goes, oh, you'll be okay now because the parents actually, because these are private schools, they fired that coach and took over. The parents actually took over the coaching duties. So this year, and then they were like really good and then they just went really bad. And then the, and then you could see when I went over there again and the parents had taken over, they started smiling again, but you could see it. The kids were no longer smiling. They weren't enjoying the game. It was, it was really sad. So this was my first visit since I got this third coach, which I walk in and that their coach that they got, she goes, oh my gosh, all of y'all, you're going to love this referee. She's my favorite. She's been repping me since I was a seventh grader and she's now like through college and now an adult. And so that kind of makes you feel good that you make that impression. Well, it went just like your game. It went five games all the way to the end. We went into overtime at the end and they ended up winning, like you said, by two points. But to see that team turn around and I know, and I looked at that, you know, that, that new coach and I said, you have done amazing. And I said, in that little dump that your setter's doing, I know that's you because I remember when you used to do that, you taught her that because she couldn't do that last year. I can see you are forming a good team. And she said, it's just so much fun when they start doing the stuff you teach them, isn't it? And so it was just kind of neat to see all of that transpire. But that's the difference. That's the kind of difference that we make. And we can make that difference on a volleyball court, a basketball court, football, or we can make that difference in our classroom. And I think... I think that's why I still do this is that little bit right there. And I think that's also why I still go into these volleyball games, but yeah, it is, it gets intense, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, we had, it was so funny. We had, um, uh, there was a, there was a group of boys. I posted this on my Instagram for people who follow me over there, but I took a, 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 
a photo of them because they were the hype crew. It was uh, there was a lot of them, but there was there was really one group that was kind of leading the the hype. And there was a dad that even like he he was jumping in with the chants, and then the boys jumped in, and That's then fun. the other side had their group of people. And so anytime anyone scored, it was like they would stand up and it was, it was good. Like it never got out of hand or whatever they were, Mm -hmm. but it was, you know, it was a little trash talk kind of across the aisle and stuff. Nothing too crazy, but it it was funny to watch. And it was, you know, eventually we got the, the, the last laugh, so to speak, but it was cool. You know, it's, it's that level. It's the stuff like there, you know, people have been asking, you know, I feel like a lot of people have asked me more, like, how was admin, but really the most praise I have is for high school. I told some of my friends, I was like, I should have probably went to high school a long time ago, which some of my mentors have been telling me to do it for a long time, but I love the Mm -hmm. high school energy. There's, there's a magic about the high school level. I know so many of our audience are like fifth and fourth grade teachers. So they're like, Oh my God, here we go. The high school talk. But really, I mean, for me, I mean, there's such a, uh, there, I love the energy that, that camaraderie and, uh, you know, from our campus that we were still kind of, we're still in the process of reclaiming that, right? Because of COVID and just that energy of games and pep rallies and stuff, you know, we, we did a pep rally on our campus and homecomings coming up and we did our home games and I got to, you know, be on the sidelines, you know, during the football game and be there, you know, until what, 10 or something at night and just that energy of the band and the crowd. There's a, there's a whole kids section at the football game and they're all, you know, dressed up and painted and, you know, they have signs and stuff and they're reacting to the cheerleaders and it's just, it's a magical energy. I was like, man, for someone who like, if you love school, like that, it's just like the, it's like, I'm getting more of it now. And I was like, Oh yeah, mm-hmm. this is, you know, it's one of my friends goes, you like the long days. I was like, they're usually my favorite because there's so much, going on and yeah you know my feet hurt like crazy when i stand from you know eight to eight but mm-hmm. um it's it's dope anyway let's intro the podcast miss ochoa it's been oh, 14 minutes right. this is crafted drafts ladies and gentlemen that's pam ochoa i'm jacob chester and we are two english teachers down here in the state of texas doing what we love talking about reading and writing workshop pam from the classroom perspective me from the classroom and admin perspective these days um so it's been exciting of all the transitions that we're going through but uh today what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about author's purpose, but from the perspective of kids, right? The having kids set their author's purpose. And I didn't tell Pam in advance why uh, I kind of wanted this topic. I knew she would be able to talk about it regardless of my why, but I have a story to tell in just a moment that should spearhead. We're also going to answer, we're going to follow up from a question from last week and read some comments from you guys. So it should be a nice full episode, but I want to tell you that this episode is supported and sponsored and kept alive by our wonderful Patreon supporters. And you can support us over there at patreon.com as well. You can find that link at craft and draft workshop.com supporting us, gets you access to bonus episodes that no one else hears. We do a bonus episode every single month. We release bonus trainings. We have several over our trainings over there at this point where we talk about everything from setting up craft books to looking at those to talking about workshop to our massive two-hour training that we did with 
patrons and other listeners that joined us. So join over there. It's just going to keep going. We're going to keep building. So the value proposition just keeps increasing every single week. But we only do that because of our supporters, which are Alicia, Brandy, Leah, Mark, Amy, Rebecca, Courtney, Carol, and Alyssa, Destiny, Lori, Natalie, Susan, Tracy, and Andrea. They keep everything going, and we love their support. Also, we're supported by you for subscribing and leaving reviews on this podcast. Those really do help us rank and ensure that when someone finds, when they're Googling English podcast or how to teach reading, how to teach writing, workshop, anything like that, helps them realize that we are uh, not just you know, snake oil salesmen that were really people who've done the work and we genuinely care. So those reviews and subscribers really do help. And last month was one of our biggest months of all time of downloads. So we support you and thank you uh, for that as well. But let's get to the conversation. All righty, Mr. Show. Before we get to our headlining topic today, um, I'm going to read, I'm going to do our comments first. I figure that'll be a nice way to start. So, uh, Leah had written to us and said, you should sell a meaning dictates form poster. She says, since hearing you say that I'm like a broken record in the classroom, the students' minds are blown that they don't need to write a five paragraph essay and can include visual elements in their informa- informative writing. I will draw one, but I bet you could make one that would look so much better. So look at that. We, we, apparently we have have to do a meaning dictates form something some type of merch i would love honestly i would love a hat or a shirt for myself but i don't know and we were we talked about this a little bit off air you know this it's obviously this isn't come from us where was the first place that you heard that line well it was when i was training to be an abydos teacher they had given me uh so, so you know, I already explained a while back that you had to do like 30 books. You had to summarize them, et cetera. And then we had where they would, we had, they pretty much pulled a topic out of the hat and we had to go home that night, get it ready and present it to uh, Dr. Carol and her husband, uh, Ed, Edward Wilson. And uh, so I got the one that does exactly that. How do you write the essay and how do you help the students shape the essay and that was my topic so I started going with what I thought and I mean to tell you Mr. Wilson he stood up right in the middle of the lesson and he goes apparently he thought and I probably was going down the wrong wrong path I was about to tell them how to organize it in their five paragraph essay and he was like stop He goes, Pam, the one thing you need to remember and always remember, meaning dictates form. I was embarrassed at first because I thought, oh, no, I'm never going to be able to teach. I'm the only one that they've stopped. But I think what it was, was he wanted it to really, I mean, that really is the heart of this whole, (laughs) there again, a heart. But anyway, that's really a very important pivotal point because if we start telling the students what they, how they organize it, in other words, what they end up doing is we say, we want a five-paragraph essay, and you need to make sure that everything you're going to do or say, you they try to fit it into the essay, and it makes the it doesn't make the writing any better. It makes it worse. So what they want to say should determine how they choose to say it. And so that's where I first heard it was uh, when I got up and was redirected in one of my lessons. 
well. It was great. And so, you know, we, we love to, to pay tribute to the people that influence us. And I think, uh, you know, Linda Reef even said it on her episode with me on Teach Me Teacher. And I'm pretty sure she says that, you know, she got it from Don Graves. And so, you know, it, it just kind of comes from everyone. Like we all kind of share these ideas and, and whatnot. So it doesn't come directly from us. However... It's a very accurate statement. I think, I think if you if you lead with that, then uh, like Leah says, it blows kids' minds. Now we have oh, yeah. um, another response. Natalie had written to us. She had said uh, about grammar. She said it was a great episode. Our last episode, number one hundred six. She says honestly, you and Pam could talk about anything, and I would enjoy it. So the whole time I listened, I kept thinking Thanks. grammar is very much like vocabulary. Neither should be taught in isolation. I think we agree. People need connections. I could relate to Pam's noun conversation. Uh, for the first few years of teaching, I started with nouns. Boring. I then realized that my students weren't or couldn't connect the grammar lesson with their own writing. Now I try to teach grammar within writing. I may see growth in some of my students' writing, but good writing comes with practice, and that can span more than a year and usually comes with academic maturity. She says, what I think is fun to do is to show them the importance of punctuation and word choice is up to... Uh, or word choices to put it in writing that can be read different ways depending on what word is used. Um, we do this once a week. If I did it once, it would be fun, but they wouldn't make a long-term connection. These are legit sentences that we analyze. We only take a couple of minutes. I have found that through the course of the year, my students begin to analyze their own writing to make sure they are using the correct punctuation and word, which is our that's our whole goal, Miss Ochoa, right there. And then mm-hmm. she adds a little point, and you actually had something to say about this. She said, lastly, have either of you watched Victor, what is that, Borgia? Borg? Borgia. Borgia. Finette. We know that I can't pronounce things. If you go back to like episode three or four, I don't even remember what word I do. Do you remember that? What I said, Ochoa? That was some, some term. Someone had wrote into something. Anyway, it doesn't matter. No, <laughs> phon- phonetic punctuation. I show this to my students every year, and it's very funny. So Victor Borgia, what is this? You've seen it. I have well, not. Well, Victor Borgia from the 50s, probably, 40s and 50s, he was a, a concert pianist. That's what he did by trade. But when he did his shows, he had always he was very funny. And so one of his skits that he would do is he would take a book And he would read to the audience. Now I'm going to read to you. And so when he would read, he would say, now, imagine that when we read, you know, punctuation makes a difference in when when we write. So so if somebody can't see it, then it's important that they at least know what the punctuation is. So he would actually take the punctuation and he would make sounds. So he had a different sound for like an exclamation point and and a question mark. And then one of them. I I think he did a, you know, something like that for the, my cats are fighting, sorry. But anyway, for the, uh, for the period. And so he would read a sentence, you know, like um, green eggs and ham make a fine breakfast, you know, like that. And so he would actually, he'd have one for the con. And then, so he would be reading it and it's hilarious. It's really great. It's hilarious. But he, he makes punctuation come alive because he actually reads the punctuation with sound marks. It's hilarious. Well, for people who haven't seen it, like myself, we got to dive in. Maybe yeah. someone will find it useful. I know you were like, I, I know what I'm going to use now. 
I'm gonna mm-hmm. bring it back up. I have used it. Yeah, I've used it before. I used to show it all the time right before I would start revising and editing. When I started editing, I usually do it with editing. And so just to kind of have some fun with it. So it's kind of cool. And then the kids, I've seen it where uh, you can have the kids create their own sounds and stuff like that. And they have fun reading it. And you just do a little play play with punctuation well, time. To add to that, you know, Kim Bearden of Ron Clark Academy fame, she uh, she does like, it's, I don't know, it's like grammar boot camp maybe, or it's it's something to where they move. So it's like karate moves with like different punctuation. So oh, they'll, that'd be fun. they'll read stuff out loud. And I know she's done different ones. She's done like an automotive one where like she transformed her whole class into like a, a car repair shop. And then they had, uh, she, she also has a car in her classroom. So that helps, but she, uh, I, you could do it without one, you know, but they, uh, you know, they have like different screws and stuff for different like levels of punctuation. So they have to repair the sentences. You know what I mean? Oh, and I so, love it. Yeah. You know, I, I think there's, you know, fun ways if, to, to get people engaged. You know, the whole, the whole idea, you know, I think is ingraining it in their brain. And, you know, I, I think that stuff's cool. But, you know, I think Natalie, the one, the one of the reasons I wanted to read her comments, because I think she just has a, She's she's very in line with what we're talking about and just another fantastic teacher of trying to mm-hmm. uh, make that transition happen. Not saying like, you know, realizing that, you know, if you just talk about it, it's never going to really transition over. And that, that was a big part of last right. week's episode. So, well, uh, if you don't mind, no, go ahead. When she talked about doing the sentence, you know, that's what um, Jeff Anderson in his and and you have interviewed him, but his patterns of power, where he it's an invitation to notice. Anyway, we have to do that, right? And they're being a little more specific, but coming in to make sure that we're actually doing it this year. And so I'm thinking, all right, how am I going to do this with my craft and draft book? So here's what I decided. I'm going to put the patterns, and we started it this week, but the patterns of power sentence. I pulled one from a book that they're reading. And uh, so, but where the students are writing their sentences on the left side. So they go to their, one of their pieces that they're working on. And then they write their sentence at the top and on the left side. So you got the writing on the right side on the draft book and the, and their, their, their sentence on the left side. And so what I'm having them do is that one of the next things is compare contrast. So they go and find another sentence. They can find a sentence in their book that they're reading, their self-selected reading book that that imitates her similar to the one that we're showing. So they're going to write that down. And then in their writing, they're going to look at that, that sentence right in front of them. And they're going to look through their sentence, their actual writing, and see if they can find a sentence that's similar that they've written. If not, then that's where they're going to revise a sentence just to play with it and put that, put their new sentence on the left side. So that's something I'm going to do with patterns of power that uh, talking about those sentences she's talking about, they could put that in there and then they could imitate and play with it, but it's right there next to the right, their own writing. So they can see if they're already doing it or not doing it adding to it if they like the way it looks and they can earn you know if it keeps the meaning or improves the meaning they can add it to their their actual writing so that's something that i just thought of that i decided to do that's different than what i've done in the past yeah i I love it now uh transferring over one more response here i love it when we have episodes that are filled with comments and response whatnot if it's just I think it, it, it's the my favorite part of this podcast is talking directly to people that listen. But Marissa responded back, and that last episode was pretty much 
um, you know, a lot of it was dedicated to answering her last question about uh, uh, grading writing, or more importantly, the the final product of writing. But she had a follow up, which I'm glad she did because I think we have more clear more clarity about what she was talking about last week. She says, hey, hi, Pam and Jacob. Thank you for responding to my question on the podcast. It was so interesting to hear your take. We use standards in our lessons. My question is more about after they've been working so hard with me and they score a high grade that isn't showing their independent abilities. Like Pam said, I use their process piece as a test. That grade is higher than it would be if they were not utilizing the tools of writing workshop. So is that presenting an authentic picture to parents of their students' writing skills. Thank you so much for making me part of your podcast for that episode. I would love to hear your thoughts if you have a moment, Marissa. So, Marissa, this is this is interesting. So this is this does clarify what we were talking about yesterday. I'm glad to see that uh, they are standards-focused. But this is talking about, and I think this is it. I don't know if we've really ever addressed this. So, honestly, <laughs> this could take up the rest of the podcast rather than us getting <laughs> to that author's purpose. It might tra- – I think it might intermingle. But, you know, even reading it out loud just then, I love this idea because I think she has a point because I'm going I'm to kind of paraphrase and then add my own here just as I'm thinking aloud and processing this, which is, you know, it's the idea of if – We are there guiding kids through conferences, guiding kids through our lessons, sitting with them, working them through their pieces to make their pieces better. Is that piece that goes through that whole process really an indication of what they can do uh, when, if they were just left alone and didn't have that, would that be an indication of what they could do? And I have, so basically almost like a cold write versus the writing process write. Right. And I think this is interesting because Natalie, if I, if my memory serves me correctly, who we just read a comment from, she had made a comment to me one time that said, you know, because I talk about often that my writing wall is something that a lot of kids wanted to make after that first like six weeks or whatever. Once I post something like, Oh, am I going to make the wall? Or, and then when I post stuff, when am I going to make the wall? You know? So they start writing and going, is this a wall piece? Is this a wall piece? Is this a wall piece? And she had asked, well, is that really authentic if they're trying to get onto the wall? Uh, and so she raised that question. I think this is a similar concept of because we, we, we talk about that authenticness. So we're trying to be as authentic as possible within the system of school. And if we're really working with kids on a deep level, she raised the question, is that an accurate representation? Now, see, the, you know what this reminds me of? So Miss Ochoa. In my two books that I have published, neither of them were done on my own. Can you believe that? I had editors. I had beta readers. I had mm-hmm. – so I had probably – I think I had three different editors on both books, including people that weren't paid and just my friends who read it and gave me feedback and and uh, helped me uh, do a variety of things. So – are those books representations of my actual writing ability, or are they not? That's my question. I don't hmm. know. What do you think? Is it, what what it, as a because in in a real world circumstance, what we're doing with kids when we're when we're conferencing with them, when we're helping them edit, when we're helping them revise, that's no different than me, someone who's been published, working with editors. Is it not? Wow, I think it would be the same thing, yes. Well, Nancy Atwell talks about it, too. She says she actually goes another step further in the middle. She directly talks about in the middle is her book, by the way, for people that don't know. 
Uh, well, one of her books. <laughs> it's it's the Nancy mm-hmm. Atwell Bible, in my opinion. But her uh, right. her comment is she's the final editor of kids' papers. So they do peer editing and they do revision, but she physically edits them for the last piece. And that's almost like even saying that it feels taboo in the school culture, right? Because we're usually the red pin after, not before the grading, but in her mind, she's like, well, cause she's published. She's like, well, I have editors that are the final, you know, they go Mm -hmm. through the final and I approve them as the writer. What's the difference? And I think this is, I think that is a, that is a thoughtful question. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I'm thinking then the question needs to be, is it authentic writing or is it an authentic process? Hmm. Because I think what we're talking about is an authentic process. Yeah. But how, I mean, it has, I mean, it would be an authentic writing too, wouldn't it? Because it's. Well, it would be if, I I think, I think the authentic writing comes from them choosing to write i think i think that starts from choice where it's not teacher directed it's more student directed so you you keep your they get to choose which writing pieces they want to take like as far as like putting it on the wall if they want to make the wall if they're making the wall with something you've assigned and what i mean by assigned you've said you've given them a star prompt let's just say a star prompt's our high stakes test so a high stakes testing prompt, you give that to them. They did not have a choice in the prompt. They they may choose how they address the prompt, okay, but it's still more of a test-taking genre. Uh, I think they could still probably make the wall, you know, if that's what they want to put on the wall. So my thinking is, is it's, it's when you give student choice and student gets to choose their topic choose how they approach that topic and then make the decision on their own whether they want to be on the wall or not, whether they want to be published in this area. If they are, if they are actually choosing it for that purpose, then the authentic process would be to have time to revise, time to work on it, time to edit it. Editors, peer editing, self-editing, maybe chief editor, as in Nancy Atwell's case. So to me, that's what I mean by is it an authentic process versus authentic writing? Well, and I think, and the reason I, I love this question, one, I'm obsessed with the writing process, but two, I think this is interesting because this is almost the, the workshop format even though it's been around, you know, as we've documented before on the show, you know, since the eighties, and it's evolved in different ways, but the core of it has kind of stayed the same. Um, it still kind of is in the face of traditional English teaching, and it's still not as pervasive as uh, we we would probably hope that it would be. I think it's probably more pervasive in English, considering the English the our elementary because elementary teachers are the ones tuning in mostly um, to our show. So. If that's a, a data point, um, and I think that uh, you know we have seen workshop, but even in my district now, you know workshop is embedded into our curriculum. It's at the high school level now. There's some interesting challenges at the high school level with uh, certain testing and getting prepared for AP classes, and you know making sure you hit the right pieces of literature or the right types of writing and stuff like that. So that that has its own complexities that we'll probably talk about at some another time, but. 
I like this question because it really goes to the heart of the matter, which is uh, test, right? So a state test, when you're having kids write, or even like any test, like I had to, for my principal test, I had to write a heck of a lot of stuff um, during my five hours. I had to do a 80 multiple choice questions and four almost essay type questions that were, that were extremely long. And so those are cold writes, right? When we have kids write in seventh grade to the test or now on the new star test here in Texas, they have to write on every test. Those are cold writes. Those are first draft reads. And, this begs the question, which one shows you more information, Ochoa? Is the, for the teacher, is the better information gathered from going through the writing process, going through conferences, doing peer editing, revising, maybe the teacher jumps in and helps edit, and then a final piece is produced? Is that more indicative of student skill or is a cold write or, or, or are they useful in different ways? I think they're useful in different ways. For example, we just had a reading screener that we took. The kids were going, can we use a dictionary? And the answer is no. Can we use our um, text-to-speech? Can we use all that? The answer is no. Why? Because I want to know what you can do without the help. So to me, that cold write is what they can do before the help. But... To me, it's not where you start, it's where you finish that matters the most. So this is where we're starting. And then we help each other. We help, like you said, that whole process to make it better. Okay. And then so it's not where we start, it's where we can end up. So how can so so in reading, for example, now we go ahead and add that dictionary, we add their text to speech, we add some of their supports. Now, how can they do? So you're looking at two different purposes there. So with the help, they can they can be uh, participating at a grade level pace, right, or skill set. But without the help, they're not there. So I think you need both. I think you need to know where they can write when they just cold write, but then you need to know, can they take it to that next step? Can they use their resources? Because that's a skill all into itself. And what we want, um, and I think um, I read this somewhere, and it's like, don't depend on your memory. Don't depend on your first try. Make sure you use all of your tools available to you so that you don't make mistakes in the future. And I think that's the skill set that we're really trying to teach because when we get out here on our own as citizens who contribute to our society, we want citizens who can go and get the help if they need the help on their own. So that's what, that's what we're trying to do. Can they get make a bit better product? You can't tell me that in the advertising world or in the, the building world or in the architectural world or in the car world that you mentioned that they don't have people that come in quality check their their work to make sure. And if they don't, they send them to training so they can be better at it. I, I think that's real world. So I think that's what we're trying to do. And we're trying to teach them how to how to navigate that. And I think this writing process is one way we can do it. Well, and I think this is so I just had a I had a literacy coach one time. I've talked about her before. She's been on Teach Me Teacher. Um, mm-hmm. She was she was the the person that kind of opened my eyes to all this. You know, she was she showed me Donald Miller and Kelly Gallagher and all of them and 
I don't know. I can't even imagine the teacher I would be without her. But mm-hmm. her one of her fundamental like stances that she took, and she was a rebel. I mean, th- I sometimes like you know we've joked that I'm rebellious. She was rebellious in so many ways, and I think that's why I connected with her so much. But she, uh, she used to rail against cold writing. She was like, why, why would we do that? This is not real world. Very few things in the real world are cold rights outside of test. She was like to, to rate kids on cold rights is, is, is stupid and, and dumb. And, you know, we, we obviously we can't change state tests and stuff, but it's that idea. That's really interesting. But I want to, I want to take this one step further in evolving the idea of a cold, right? And I think this will go back to our friend's question, Marissa, which is, uh, so I, I love reading like writers, like interviews or listening to interviews of writers talk about their writing process. I love it. Right. I, can, I do too. It's, it's one of my favorite things to do, even if I don't even like the writer. Like I've talked about, I listen to Stephen King talk about writing all the time and I don't really care about his books, but I love the way he talks about writing and I think he has some good advice, but they like writers have often talked about how in their early days they would, they would, there would be a lot of edits, right? Cause they're like older writers that have like done a bunch of novels, you know, they'll talk about, yeah, you know, it used to take me longer to produce a novel because it just, it needed more work. I had to polish. There was clunky scenes. There was wording that was wrong, syntax, grammar, all that stuff. And they talk about, you know, 20 years later, they're like, my drafts are pretty clean. My plots are pretty solid. My characterization is pretty good. It doesn't mean they don't change them in the revision and editing process. But they've done it so long and they become a master of their craft. It just takes less time. The amount of time it takes me to produce a podcast when I first started versus now I do two podcasts a week. Um it's incre- it's it's far less, right? Um, mm-hmm. The amount of time it takes to develop a lesson now versus my first year, right? We get better with time, so our first attempts become better. So if students are, yes, that first attempt to, to Marissa's like general question, that first attempt, that rough draft, that, that cold right is always going to be worse, always, just because of the nature of what it is. However, the more kids write the more polishing that happens over time, the more time they have with interacting with ideas, you get better at putting words to the page. You get better at doing whatever it is that you're trying to get better at. And I think that is really kind of the goal. And that, if anything, is what cold rights tell us. If a cold write is is riddled with grammar errors, weird structure, bad word choice, bad spelling, um, I'm saying bad as in just kind of like incorrect or kind of missing the mark. Those things, if it's riddled with those things, then what does that tell us about the student? It tells us that they have not had significant practice to produce a more cleaner draft, a more focused draft. And we know this when we watch students kind of throughout the year and over time is as the year goes on, they get far more effective at starting, right? They get far more effective at Mm -hmm. doing things. They don't make the same mistakes, especially if we're going through this process. So yes, it's always going to be lesser, but that lesser version does give us information about where they're at in general. And really, if they, if you do a cold right at the beginning of the year, and then you do one final one close to the end of the year, they should be stark differences, 
right? It won't ever be at the level, like Marissa said, of that final going through the whole process. But if you do those or three checks or four checks throughout the year, you should see a progression by that end. And I think that would be a great indication of growth. I don't know. What do you think? Oh, yeah, I do think so. And then the, the, the sophistication in their writing will also become better, and you can, you can actually see growth. Um, there's a guy named Kellogg, and, and I think I mentioned him the other day about units of thought, but that's what he does is he measures units of thought. And so it's words within units of thought. There's some kind of formula that he uses. And so you give the same cold right, then you turn around and give the same cold right again, like you said, and then you count their units of thought and you divide it by the words that they use, or you count their words and divide it by their units of thought, and that can show you an actual physical, um, uh, visible, I mean, uh, check on on if their writing has improved sophistication. Uh within the, you know, you know what I'm saying? They're able to put together more complex ideas. So anyway, that's, that's pretty cool. And I also think that the more you even do some of those cold rights, the better they'll get. So cold right, go over it, but I wouldn't do everything on a cold right. I think they have to be able to take in and work on, but I do think that they need to have some, <laughs> have a cat crawling right here and about to get on my keyboard. But anyway, uh, yeah, I have, I mean, I think that I, I even have, when I was in high school, especially, uh, I would actually do timed writing and things like that because they are going to be taking those AP tests. And when they take those AP tests, those are timed and they have to be able to think quickly, make decisions fast, use evidence quickly. And I think that's how it's going to be uh, on our high stakes testing, and it probably is that way on others where they have to think about the literature fast. They got to figure out how to put it all together, support their thoughts, write a well, uh, cohesive, well written uh, paper uh, that pr- that analyzes that writing. And you know, and I think I think the more they do things like that, the better they get. But they have to have that, like you said, they have to have a lot of practice with going through the entire process so that they can they can know. Because once you once you understand commas, let's just use that for an example since we brought up punctuation. Once you understand the four major uses of a comma, right? How to use it in a series, how to use it uh, with the positives, how to use it with introductory information, how to use it uh, to connect sentences and to separate units of thought and ideas or to connect them. Uh, when you learn all of that, then you start seeing it. You just start seeing it. Once you know something, it's kind of like when you buy a car, you're like, I've never seen this car before. You buy one and you're like, wait, I thought I was doing something unique, but everybody has this car. You know what I mean? And it's not that they didn't have the car to begin with. It's just until it became came to your attention, you didn't realize that everybody had the same color you did or et cetera or whatever, the same kind. And so I think once they become aware of what they're doing, then they're going to make those, those uh, corrections on their first draft, not on their 10th draft. And so once they really learn it, that's what, that's, what's going to happen. I do a lot of editing right then and there as I'm writing. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is this, the, the cold, right. It gives us this information, but as students get better and more fluent there, they start having cleaner first draft, which means you can work on better things. Right. And this happens in our conferences with kids. 
as their drafts get better and their pieces get better and they have a better focus over time, that means we don't have to focus on the smaller things. We get to go deeper with them, right? And I think right. that, honestly, that is the magic of what Rightfully Empowered was with those that group of kids that that book is about is because I had them for two years and I knew their lives and I was connected to them and I knew their writing and I had every conference ever because of my app Notability, not sponsored, but maybe sponsored someday. They, I had all of these conferences written down so I could literally trace this progress over time and it gave me all this information. So when we sat down, it was it was so we were it was like we were standing on such a, a more solid foundation. I think that's the goal, right? Is, mm-hmm. is as we go forward, it's and I've said this a thousand times and I will keep saying it. I, I say it as a principal almost every day if in a teacher meeting or something like that. Growth is not linear. It never has been. It never will be. And we want it to be because linear growth is beautiful. It looks great on graphs. And standardization growth is kind of linear because of just the way standardization is. I don't go into a statistics conversation, but that's that's why those graphs can look like that. But individuals, and if you're uh, on an individual level and on a not standardized basis, it, it's almost impossible to grow in a linear fashion because – Everyone comes from different backgrounds. They come from different perspective. Everyone cognitively thinks differently. So in writing, writing is writing growth is going to look different for every single student. Vocabulary growth is going to look different. The the grasp on grammar is going to look different based on their reading lives and and a variety of other uh, aspects. So that I think is important because we we need to look at. I think this goes back to our many conversations about the the holistic idea of what it what even is um an effective piece right um they're th- having that conversation with with your fellow teachers in your department or you, whatever you want to do is you know what makes an effective personal narrative is it a a driving plot is it an emotional resonance is it the structure is it the use of certain mechanics what drives an effective poem what drives an effective article and everyone else is going to have those opinions but I, I think the the more we talk through those things and the more kids even understand that there's nuance to that I think the the more accurate um our assessment of that will come and and to to even go back to Marissa she was talking about her idea of being accurate to parents i think that's a great question and i think honestly that's a great invitation to bring parents in into hey mm-hmm. you know this isn't this isn't like hey you sit here and write the essays of the old right you it, an essay isn't assigned necessarily within these now they can be within workshop i'm not saying that is totally devoid of workshop but in general, it's about picking your pieces, picking your genre, and kind of going forward from there. And so having that conversation with parents, I think, is a great opportunity to show them how school has evolved. I have long said, and er, some of the earliest episodes of Teach Me Teacher was people bringing on and saying, we don't share the good news of education enough, but we also don't share how education has evolved. I, I mean, I am shocked, literally shocked about mm-hmm. how... 
the people get away with saying things like on the news or on radio shows or podcasts about teaching and education. I read a thread of somewhere, someone saying we don't even teach geography anymore. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like it was like stuff like that. Like, or They teach human geography and yeah. they teach world geography. I so, mean, at least in Texas they do. But people have so many misunderstandings. Of course. People have so many misunderstandings about teaching. And so I feel like, you know, it, whether you do it on social media or on a podcast or like we're doing or do it through just your individual communities and sharing things via your own kind of like social networks, whether that's on social media or just face to face, I think it really is a part of our job. I truly do to educate people on what it means to teach today, what how classes have evolved. Laura Ross. Bob cracks me up because I see her. I say I see her post this stuff all the time <laughs> in articles. I'll like find her in comments on like Edutopia or something, and mm-hmm. she like I saw one that's coming to mind right now where she commented and said the, the picture you're using in this article shows desk and rows. Very few classes have desk and rows anymore. Would you please change this? And I and in my head I was like, man, she's doing that because she understands that that image that's going to get seen by potentially thousands, maybe millions of people, especially for. Utopia, which is a huge company, that image affects how people see what school is. And I think, and I, you know, I think that's it. This is where that, that I've always said that it takes a village to, to get kids to do with it. Parents are an essential piece to a child's education. Every teacher understands what it's like when parents aren't supportive or aren't involved in a child's life. That child has significant more roadblocks than the parent that is involved and that is uh, in the know about things. We know this. We've seen these kids. We've experienced Mm -hmm. these kids. And so part of that is us bridging that gap of, hey, this is what writing instruction looks like and here's why. This is this is what the process looks like, and here's why. And it's also, in, in this strength into reading, too. Sorry, I feel like I'm on a soapbox right now. But this goes into the reading aspect, too, which is it's not a we assign books anymore necessarily. Yeah, that can happen at times, and we've obviously talked about that here. But really, it's about getting kids to enjoy literature. That way they read so much that we can actually teach them through that. And having mm. these conversations, building those bridges to people that might not understand or have a misinterpretation of education, I feel like that's that's extremely important. So for someone like Marissa, who's worried about, hey, is this really showing the accuracy? I, not only do I think it is, I think she should use that as an opportunity to pull parents in and say, you know, this is what real writing is in the real world. Very few things that you read, right? Articles on the internet, everything, those things go through copy editors, they go through marketing teams, they go through all of this other stuff. I want your kids to experience what it's like to be a writer in the real world, not just a writer in school. And I think I think that's a stark difference. And I mean, if we can if we can build those bridges, I mean, talk about effectiveness. I mean, talk about I mean that's difference making in writing, in my opinion. I don't know. I get excited, Ochoa. I can't mm-hmm. help it. I can hear it. I think that's good. I think you're right. I, I do think that we have to advocate for ourselves because somebody's going to. And we want to make sure we're a part of that. But I do know that's that. That's right. Someone is going to. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've seen that. I think we've I think we've so. seen a world where educators did not advocate enough and where, you know, people are like, you know what, we we need to speak up. And that way we, people are making the correct decision because we know, you know, educators, you know, we're not all bound to politics or to lead districts or 
to be principals or to be coaches or anything like that. You know, we all have our different roles to play and our different interests. But if we don't say something as people who love the classroom and love students, other people are definitely going to say them <laughs> and they're going to make the decisions, like you said. So, right. I don't know. Any any closing thoughts that I've, we've, I feel like this was a, this was a, I did not know this we were going to go this way. Across the gamut. We did. I love these episodes, but any closing thoughts before we, we, we send people away off into their, their happy teacher land? Well, I think I'm going to go back to where we started, and that was we do make a difference. And I think that was what was impressive of me, impressed upon me tonight or yesterday when I was talking to, or this morning, when I was talking to those students that what we do, how we are in the classroom, what we teach these students, and what they come away learning, you know, what they end up learning, uh, makes a difference in their lives. And so I just want to encourage everybody to continue what you're doing because what you're doing will change their life forever. Boom. Could not say it any better. This podcast is supported. Let's go reverse. Andrea, Tracy, Susan, Natalie, Lori, Destiny, Nalissa, Carol, Courtney, Rebecca, Amy, Mark, Leah, Brandy, and Alicia. They keep this podcast going just like you can. If you enjoy this episode or want to join the conversation or get bonus content, bonus trainings, or access to bonus videos, go over there to our website, craftthejobworkshop.com, where you can find our link to the Patreon, where you can support us. There are two levels, the listener and the listener plus tier, regardless Regardless, we support uh, or we love your support rather um, if you don't want to do those things or you don't have the money to throw away that is wonderful subscribe so don't miss any other episodes we drop an episode every single Friday subscribe so you don't miss any of those leave a review if you have not already let other people know that this podcast is worth listening to that's Pamela Trump Jacob Chastain and know that we are here for you <laughs> <laughs>